I make things and I try to manifest some of my thinking into the pieces of work that I get involved with. But think of Tumatoinga, when you see him on the waka upstairs, okay? He's there with his arms going backwards like this. He is challenging what's out in front of him. If it is a known factor that he has in front of him, the challenge is not so great. But if it is unknown, as it is for a war canoe, then matters are different. But look behind him, and you'll see behind him a whole cultural uh, development and concept that really tells you so much about Maori religion and Maori philosophy. There's exciting times ahead for all of us in terms of how we treat our treasures, how we look at what is a national treasure, and of course we all know that one of our most important treasures of all time will always be Hetangata, Hetangata. It is people, it is people, and all the stories that they bring with them. Dr. Cliff Whiting, Master Carver, artist, storyteller, and educator, died this week, aged 81 years old. His work is seen in the corridors of the Beehive, the National Library. Kimiura Dining Hall at Turanga Waiwai Marae and the National Museum Te Papa Tongarewa. He designed Rungo Marairua, the Marae space at Te Papa, a depiction of Te Aumarama, the world of light and the story of the separation of Rangi and Papa. His illustrations feature in government and school publications. Since the 1960s, Dr Cliff Whiting has held a number of influential roles in arts administration. He was Te Papa's first kaihautu Māori, a lecturer in the Manawatu region and worked as an advisor for the New Zealand Historic Places Trust. Dr Whiting was born in 1936 in Te Kaha and died on July 16th. In this episode of Tiahikal, we delve into the archives thanks to Nataonga Sound and Vision as a tribute to Dr. Cliff Whiting. He shares his views about Māori contemporary art in its many forms and guises, how Atua Māori or Māori gods are depicted, and the influence of religion. The year is 1990. This is part of his keynote speech at the Taonga Māori Conference. I have this incredible topic of contemporary art and Christianity and it's massive and it's a massive topic but I think before we deal with that or even come to start to consider it it's necessary to say particularly to our visitors who've been with this conference for about a week now is it that you have no doubt recognized and realized the deep religious nature of Maori people. And it's really about this area <clears throat> that something needs to be said. Because words have been used in terms of spirituality, wairua, and uh, words such as that. And maybe it's, it's a time to start to reflect and to try and put some of that in a way that we might start to come and arrive at understanding <clears throat> 
what that might mean. <clears throat> I did go to school, and part of my education, which was pretty traumatic, because I wasn't a very good learner, was at secondary school in Takaha. They gave us a course on uh, horticulture because it, they thought it was a good thing for us to do. We studied the oak tree. There were none growing there. <laughs> I can always remember, because I've, I hear this word here, this word dichotomy. And they had this plant which they called dichotomous, a dichotomous plant. And uh, it's a bean. <laughs> But really what I'm, what I'm sort of aiming at is this. And some of the information that has already been transcribed by various scholars brings up this, this uh, uh, word, duality. And you people who have been travelling on this journey during this conference would no doubt have started to understand or come to terms or have experienced that already. And it's something that needs to be taken on board in terms of dealing with what we call our taonga and with Māori people in general. This duality that I'm referring to is something that James Mack touched on this morning. He mentioned the fact that it's good to know that Rangi and Papa and that, I think what was the big word he used, pantheon, I think, of gods were being used more and more in terms of, 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 of supporting the Tonga that we have. Interestingly enough, our people dealt with that right early on. And <clears throat> this duality has to do with the whole religious process that most of you people would know more about than I would. But for me, I like to put it simply like this. That our folk who have been accompanying and supporting, and in a sense, what I like to think also, protecting you, are people who are able to move in and out of those worlds. I talk of the Christianity ethic and value, as well as that which belong to us as Māori, our uh, landscape, of the gods, of Tāne, which, which come through. And later, when we go up, which won't be very long away, when we go up into the main hall, we can start pointing out some of those features to you. Now, this ability to interchange and exchange between the different value systems, and they're not too different in some ways, and, and to move in and out of that is, I think, something that probably needs further study and further extension. I'm only touching on these things. I'm putting this loose talk on the floor so that people can gather it up and hopefully put it into some kind of order. My long involvement has been with this very subject. I make things and I try to manifest some of my thinking into the pieces of work that I get involved with, not only with myself, but also with groups of people. And much of that has been some kind of research process that uh, I undertake and 
as we develop it with other people as well. And most of that takes place on Marae. <clears throat> Very early on in my involvement with things Māori, the concept and development of Marae, that that is the, the institution, the only institution that still has probably about 80 to 90% control over Taonga Māori exists on Marae. And I regarded that then as the place that I should work in. And in doing that was to confront this whole area of protocol, of protocol, of ritual, and certainly the whole encompassing thought about what religion is, what is it about. Me as a person, I suppose I can say I'm fairly conservative, but in terms of coming to terms with some of these issues, I've had to, to sort of be quite liberal in how we go about thinking how this might, how I might be able to make order out of this lot. And as you well know, uh, that's what artists do. That's what scientists do. That's what lots of lots of people who work in museums do, is that they have a particular kaupapa or a particular direction, and then they start to create order out of it. I had a feeling that there was something about religion which I did not, well, there was just masses of stuff I didn't understand. I wasn't that such a religious person myself. Always ran away from Sunday school, couldn't understand why people cried on, you know, over Easter, and couldn't see this God that they were talking about. So I had real difficulty with that, and when I got into the Marai situation, even more so, because I found that people would stand up, they would do a Christian thing, then they would do a Maori thing. It was confusing. And as an artist, I felt I needed some kind of direction or something to sustain the, you know, my feelings about what I might want to do. Where is my role in all of this as an artist? And what are my responsibilities? That plagued me for a long, long time. It came much easier as I started to take on board the reality of the situation. And the reality is that I started to discover that our people were masters of this dual sort of situation. They were masters of change in the sense that, in that context. And that when I looked at the protocols and the ritual that they go through, and the way that that has been established, in the places it's been established, on the artworks that they produce, if you call them artworks, it's all there. We've lost nothing. It's all there, and it remains so. Clearly stated in all those taonga that are up in the, house, up in the uh, floor here. It's fairly straightforward. You get variations on the theme, but you find it there. In general, let's go out to this duality thing. And all I'm saying about it is something very basic and I hope not oversimplistic. That there is the world of reality as we see ourselves and as we see the things around us. And I'll put it this way, that when we go to sleep we dream. And that's the time that then we start to think of the other world. We recapture that when we wake up and somehow that has to be ordered and put in place. And probably in this way, 
It's, it's the part where we start to depart from, from, some, of, from some of the other peoples because we, not, we have not put aside the fact that those dreams are realities as well. What they see in front of them and those things that come to their minds in all kinds of forms and shapes and at different times. So it's not only the dreams that they dream, but it's the time when they are reflecting in certain kinds of places that all of a sudden they are poured on by you know, a flash of inspiration, a reflection. Uh, we call some of these people who have massive doses of this matekite. So we have never departed from this dual situation of being able to handle it. And consequently, this is all I'm placing out in front of you, is to start down the track to start thinking about when people say that piece of carving has a wairua, this starts to tell you why. Because when you look at that carving, and we've heard our experts here say, that if it has a known history, it has meaning. For us, that known history not only has meaning, but it has these dimensions. So all of that is vital to the pieces. Not every piece of Maori carving is, is you know, purposeful or real or what's the word, I'm, you know, has a meaning. But there are certain things that are laid out in a certain kind of way that give people who understand what they are, and uh, there are quite a few around, what that's all about. And probably it's in the head-on sort of collision of the two cultures when they met that our people decided here was a situation that they had to deal with and they're past masters at it because you look at their art and you see it there that in the way they display their gods they have all the known sort of factors that they regarded as important to human reaction let us take one god the one that's usually talked about, one spoken about by uh, John Takarangi this morning. He used that person in a particular way, in a particular, uh, for a particular reason. Tu Matawinga. Unfortunately, many people regard him as the god of war. He is. But think about it. Before the war happens, there is the challenge. After the war takes place, if that's how the challenge finishes up, there is a process of renewal. Now, those concepts, and there are many others, and I just touch on them because it, it just increases, start to inform you about the language of carving, about the language of religion, of religious thinking within the Māori context. In this episode of Te Ahika, we pay tribute to Dr. Cliff Whiting, who died this week, aged 81. His work came in many forms, bone and stone carving, printmaking, sculpture and wood carving. He was appointed to the Order of New Zealand in 1998. In 2013, the Arts Foundation honoured him and his work with an Icon Award. 
Going back to the archives to 1998, the opening of Te Papatongariwa. Dr Cliff Whiting was the National Museum's first kaihotu or leader appointed in 1995. Current kaihotu Dr Arapata Hakiwai describes him as a true leader and visionary who believed with a passion and commitment the importance of heritage and art. Once again, the year is 1998. Thousands of people surrounded the harbour to witness the opening of Te Papa. It's about six o'clock in the morning and the weather was terrible in Wellington. Only three waka out of the 26 were able to set out. Uh, Dr Cliff Whiting joined Hinare Teua in the commentary booth at the opening. We join them here as they discuss the significance of the waka out on the harbour. How do we feel about the symbolism on the waka approaching an event as big as this today? Well, first of all, the different types of waka. I think the waka hauru with, with Heck Busby as its captain and navigator and, of course, our explorer of this uh, particular century for us, recapturing, you know, after probably 800 years of uh, non-activity from uh, any of us in this corner of the Pacific, to have a person like that with that waka go back and using the stars to navigate by, uh, retrace the journey back to, um, to Rarotonga is a major feat, but also a major recovery of much knowledge and, of course, such an exciting process. And he's so generous with the knowledge that he's, uh, he knows, he's picked up. In actual fact, he says, we never, ever lost it. It was really just an awakening of it, and through the karakia and chants, Through the, uh, and through all of those, all of the information on how to build waka, how to uh, navigate, was still all there. And, uh, of course, having him as part of this, this uh, opening this morning is, is just very awesome. And we're indeed very, very indebted to Heck, his crew, to his people Ngāti Kahu, to Ngāti Awa, who always support him, and, of course, to all other iwi that I know are here and will be behind him as well as he comes in this morning. The, uh, he's also made a, a, a smaller version of uh, Te Aurere, uh, which he's uh, made for us at the museum here. It's a working model. It's one that is out there this morning. It's a bit like the child of uh, Te Aurere. And uh, it's out there with its own crew. And uh, some of that crew are people from the museum Uh, one of them is one of his people from the waka, Te Aurere itself, and it also has uh, women on it. And that, of course, when it's, when it's done its part in the opening uh, session this morning from Te Whanganui Atara, it will be brought back into its position within Mana Whenua, and so that people will be able to see that today. Cliff, it strikes me that one of the symbolisms of what we're going to be seeing very soon Uh, hoping that Tafuri Matia relents a wee bit, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> But we're bringing you a direct commentary from the Marae area of Te Papa Tongareva, and we're awaiting the arrival, or the, we're awaiting the activity on the harbour with the various wakas Cliff Whiting has been describing. And very shortly, I know, Cliff, that it's 6.13, I think. Why 6.13? Is that official daybreak? That, that is so, yes. That's, that's, that's what we got from the people who do these things, and uh, that's why it's there to the minute. Uh, which is quite quite amazing and quite interesting. And as you say, we stand up here. Maybe I should point out that we're just standing beside the Waharoa, 
uh, of Te Marae or Te Papa Tongarewa. And this Waharua is a celebration, first of all, of the first discoverer of Aotearoa, um, Kupe, and his crew. And in front is Hine Te Aparangi. And she was the one who, who first voiced uh, the, the call as they came across uh, the Pacific to here. He ao, he ao, ko Aotearoa. So she's out the front, looking out towards uh, one of Kupe's daughters, which is uh, Matiu Island in Te Tanga. So she's out front, and once again, you know, our women, um, they do this for us, they care for us, and there she is up front here on this Waharoa. Uh, underneath it, when you look up, you will also see uh, the explorers Captain Cook and, of course, Tasman, and their two ships on either side of this Waharoa, and right up front. Now, better just have a look. So while Cliff is looking, let me explain that the term Waharoa means gateway, and this is a huge, elaborately carved gateway which leads into this courtyard of this marae at Te Papatonga River, Wong Tauroa. Yes, and um, up there also will be, and it's partly up there, and unfortunately it seems as though the boys didn't quite finish it, <laughs> will be an aeroplane um, representing the way in which uh, our tangata tiriti are still arriving in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So this is a, waro, uh, a waharoa about early discovery, and also about ngāhekinga, in other yeah. words, those arrivals who've come here, who now make up part of our society in New Zealand, make up this nation of ours, and this is acknowledged and given a position on this marae as a marae for all people, starting with the waharoa. I notice uh, some activity in the back here from our, uh, from our people who are... I think it's going to start now. the karanga. Yes, the karanga that's coming from the tangata whenua who are on the marae here with us and I know very shortly we will be raising the uh, Te Atiawa flag on our pohaki here which, uh, which um, people will recognise it acknowledges the tangata whenua, Te Atiawa and of course gives support to the iwi exhibition uh, which is theirs inside uh, mana whenua Right, Cliff, I want you to stay with me, but we're just going to let the sound of what's happening out here on the other side of the Waharoa carry on for the next minute or two minutes or so. Recorded in 1998, Hinare Teua, with Cliff Whiting, who died this week. Tonight's Tiahika has been a tribute of sorts. In the past week, Marama Martin died. She was one of the first Māori broadcasters and the first TV host to appear on Colour TV back in 1973. For announcers, I don't really think it made a great deal of difference. We were still doing exactly the same things that we'd been doing all those, for all those years. The fact that we were being transmitted in colour was not particularly obvious to us. And of course, a great many people didn't have colour television sets, so that it was going out in black and white anyway. But uh, we had always just worn things, and they'd come out in grey, or fairly dark grey, or black, or whatever colour they had come out in. The fact that we were now coming through the set 
in a colour, it didn't make any difference to what we were doing at all. And this week, traditional Māori massage or midi midi practitioner Manu Korefa died. He worked alongside Atarangi Muru and travelled the world extensively sharing Māori healing practices. He featured in an episode of Tiahika in the last month. He talked about his healing practices at a wānanga held at Tauwhare Marae in the Waikato region. The midi midi and the Romi Romi is at the forefront, it's at the top, only because it's still considered new, but it's old, because we're still considered a new country. We're only 200 years old. So everyone knows about Reiki, everyone knows about Bowen, everyone knows about everything else, but they know nothing about Romi Romi and Mirimiri. So it's a whole new dynamic for people. So now we're getting people from around the world that want to learn but for us it's always, if you really want to learn, then you need to come home and learn it. We can teach you so much overseas, but there are some aspects of it we can't teach overseas. We have to do it at home. Whakafanaungatanga, we can only do it at home. Whakapapa, we can only do it at home. Rongwa, we can only do it at home. But do you take your, I mean, you do romi romi over there, you take your... Most time we just take lako. Oh, yes. Kohatu. Um, but we'll take our own kohatu. Um, even our own lako, we'll take our own stuff with us. Because we don't know what the ends are like. Some of the, some of the stones I've used over there for, for takutaku and klaki and stuff, the sounds are not the same, they sound different. And I think a lot of it, they've just been altered. Or even the environmental conditions has changed them, oh, okay. changed the vibration. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the wood we get the same, yeah. vibration stuff we've changed. So we try and take our own stuff with us. E ngā tōtara haimata o te waonui a tāne, haere, haere ki o mātua tīpuna. Yeah. 